Beyond Barbarossa, the Eastern Front Podcast, Episode 3, The Face-Off. Welcome back to the Eastern Front, the podcast that's all about the history of the part of World War II that gets far too little attention here in the West. My name is Scott Burry. I want to thank you for tuning your podcast or dial to this channel today. This is Episode 3. The free, previous two episodes looked at that first day of the war in the East and the trends that led up to it. When the Germans launched Operation Barbarossa, their attack on the USSR, it was the largest land-based military operation in history, with nearly 4 million men and thousands of tanks, trucks, aircraft and guns. An invasion that stunned the world. One reason for that stunned reaction was that there was a non-aggression agreement between Germany and the USSR, signed about a year earlier. In his book, The First Day on the Eastern Front, Craig Luther describes the relationship between these two now enemies. In 1940, in fact, 65% of Germany's chrome ore supplies, 55% of its manganese, 40% of its nickel imports, and 34% of its imported oil were supplied by Russia. End quote. This is in addition to the millions of tons of rubber that the USSR supplied to Germany in return for weapons, manufactured goods, and skilled training. The overall story I learned about the Eastern Front from school, and that was later supported by popular culture, movies, TV shows, and so on, it's pretty basic. Adolf Hitler had always intended to invade the USSR for Lebensraum, or living space for German people. This meant exterminating the people who already lived there. From the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, the Germans smashed through the Red Army and drove to the outskirts of Leningrad, Moscow, and Stalingrad. Then the German, sorry, the Russian winter froze the Germans' mechanized army. This allowed the Russians, who were obviously used to winter conditions, to push the Germans back over the next three years until, with the help, of course, of the Americans and British, they arrived in Berlin in May 1945. This outline is summed up in one of those popular TV sitcoms from the 70s, Hogan's Heroes. You know, this sitcom about the American, British, and French prisoners of war who ran covert sabotage operations against Nazi Germany from their prison camp. It's a silly concept, but it was a big hit. One joke summed up that Western conception of the Eastern Front. One character asks, where is the Eastern Front anyway? The answer, getting closer every day. That's kind of right, but the reality is a lot messier. Let's look at the real war in the East. As I described in episode one, Germany's invasion of the USSR started at exactly the same moment in each of the three sectors along the border. A massive artillery bombardment accompanied by bomber attacks at dawn on the longest day of the year. As the sun rose and the bombs finished, men, tanks, and trucks swept across the frontier overwhelmed the border guards and destroyed the first line of Soviet defense. On that first day, German forces destroyed more than 700 Soviet aircraft, most of them still on the ground. They destroyed thousands of tanks, guns, vehicles, and other equipment, killed tens of thousands of Soviet soldiers and civilians. They advanced a distance unheard of in warfare of those days. In Ukraine, more than 25 kilometers, or 18 miles. In Belarus, or Belarus, as it's known today, 
Some of the Panzers reached 40 miles. Army Group North made the most spectacular gains. Every unit advanced at least 50 to 20 kilometers by the time the sun set. One division moved 865 kilometers. Panzer Division 8, part of the 4th Panzer Unit, made 90 kilometers on that first day, almost all the way across Lithuania to the Latvian border. But that first day also established a pattern that would be followed for at least the next two years. The farther the Germans advanced, the tougher and slower the advance became. Craig Luther's book about the first day of the war describes this experience, quoting a German soldier in his diary about June 22nd. Quote, At 0730, the regiment was able to report the capture of Kunigiskai. Here, in the sandy hilly terrain, the Russians had built bunker positions reinforced with wooden timbers and had dug foxholes and ditches on both sides of the village. They defended those fortifications tenaciously and bravely. Despite its frontal attack, our 3rd Battalion remained immobile for almost one hour and encountered its first noticeable losses, whereas the 1st Battalion, to which my 2nd com second Company belonged, was able to advance past the village, turn in, and enter the village from the rear, thus blocking the way for the Russians who attempted to make a fairly orderly retreat. End quote. So the farther the Germans went, the heavier the counterattacks became and the heavier their casualties were. By the end of the summer, the invaders were suffering an average of 2,800 casualties. That's dead, captured, or wounded every single day. In this episode, we're going to take a little bit more closer look at what each side brought to this face-off. Now, before I go much further, we have to understand one very important aspect of the Second World War in the East, its scale. The front itself stretched some 2,000 kilometers from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Plus, there was the frontier in the north in Finland. Now, let's take, compare that to the invasion of France the summer earlier. There, the distance from the German border to Paris is less than 400 kilometers, or under 250 miles. The infamous Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact that I discussed last episode divided Eastern Europe into respective spheres of influence for Germany and the USSR. It created a new frontier between these two countries through what had once been independent nations. So from that new frontier to Leningrad, so from the jumping off point of the German army in 1941 to Leningrad, was more than 900 kilometers or 550 miles, more than double that distance from the border to Paris the year before. To Moscow, it was more than 1,000 kilometers or 600 miles. Across Ukraine, more than 1,500 kilometers or 1,000 miles. So for this operation, for Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the USSR, Germany massed up close to 4 million troops, mostly German, but also some from allied or coerced partners. This was fully half of its total armed forces. Even though it already had men in occupied France, Denmark, Norway, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, had men fighting in North Africa and was conducting nightly air raids on Britain. 
one of the leading authorities on the Second World War in the East is David Glantz. So for much of this episode, I'm going to be quoting from one of his books, Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia in 1941. Like many authors, Glantz uses the terms Soviet and Russian interchangeably. I try to distinguish between those terms because the war was also fought in countries other than Russia and by people other than Russians, notably Ukrainians, Belarus, also Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and so on. So David Glantz states that the Germans massed 151 divisions, including 19 panzer divisions and 15 motorized infantry divisions. Now, there's a lot of numbers coming up. I'm sorry. I know that's hard to sort of uh, convey in a spoken word format like a podcast, but bear with me. So they had in total 3,767,000 troops. That's 3,767,000 men with 3,350 tanks. 7,200 artillery pieces, and 2,770 aircraft. Not all of those were fighters and bombers, though. There were hundreds of transport aircraft as well. In addition, Germany's ally Romania, as it was then called, contributed four divisions and six brigades, with nine more divisions and two more brigades in reserve. In the north, the Finns, reluctantly, supported the invasion with 14 divisions, who were supposed to attack in Karelia, so that narrow land connecting southern uh, Finland with uh, the area just north and west of Leningrad. So the idea was that they were going to push through there, advancing on Leningrad from the north as the Germans came up from the south and surrounded. In addition to the tanks and other armored vehicles, Germany had more than six. 100,000 other vehicles, like those famous tap tracks and so on. And there's another largely overlooked aspect of this war. And this is one my father-in-law, the late Maurice Burry, who served in the Red Army at the time. Yes, read about it in the Eastern Front trilogy. This aspect, the Germans brought more than half a million horses. While the popular conception of the German army in World War II was of a mechanized one, led by panzers, or tanks. In reality, it depended largely on horses for most of its transportation, including moving ammunition and men. In Operation Barbarossa, David Glantz says, quote, the vast majority of the German army throughout the Second World War consisted of foot mobile infantry and horse-drawn artillery and supplies, sometimes forcing the mechanized and motorized spearheads to pause while the supporting units caught up by forced marches, end quote. So yes, as I said, a lot of numbers. I'll try to keep the use of numbers and statistics to a minimum from here on. If you want more detail, though, please, I encourage you to read David Glantz's Operation Barbarossa or some of the many, many other great books about the war. But I just want to point out that the German forces were at their strongest ever on June 21st, 1941, as they gathered along the Soviet frontier. Even after their losses in France and over Britain, even after the fighting in North Africa and other operations, they would never again be as strong as they were on that day. The German Army High Command, or OKH in German, divided Operation Barbarossa's main assault into three large sectors, imaginatively calling them 
Army Group North, Centre and South. In addition, there was a smaller force, the Army of Norway, in the far north along the Barents Sea coast. East, each army group had an air fleet assigned to it. Commander-in-chief was Field Marshal Walter von Brauchert. Let's look at Army Group North. Wilhelm Ritter von Lee was the commander of Army Group North, and his task was to advance through the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia and take Leningrad, now called St. Petersburg. There, they'd link up with Finnish forces coming from the northwest, as I mentioned. Including in Army Group North were 24 infantry divisions, three panzer divisions, and two motorized divisions of the 4th Panzer Group under Colonel General Eric Hopner. Sorry, lots of numbers again. In addition, they were supported by Fliegerkorps 1 of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, under Alfred Keller, when they had uh, Junker JU-88s and Heinkel HE-115 bombers, HE-59 floatplanes, and the dreaded Messerschmitt BF-109 fighters. Their operations started in the area then called East Prussia, near Konigsberg, which is now the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. Also, the Germans were staged in Memel, now the city of Klaipeda in Lithuania. Facing Army Group North was the weakest Soviet opposition along the front. Now, for a second here, I want to pause and consider the word front. So, usually it means that imaginary lines between opposing sides in a war, the front lines, where the soldiers are shooting at each other. But of course, the Soviets, being Soviets, had, they have their own meaning. So, until the moment that Barbarossa began, until the Germans invaded, that is, the Soviets organized their defensive forces into three main areas called the Baltic, the Western Special, and the Kiev Special military districts. These were organized into two strategic echelons, the first and the four forward districts, and the second further back. But when the Germans attacked, the Soviets' first response was to reorganize and give these fronts new names. I know, communists, right? So where the Germans had army groups, the Soviets had army fronts, comprising a number of armies. It became the Northwestern Front, opposing Army Group North, the Western Front, opposing Army Group Center, the Southwestern Front, and soon the Southern Front to face the Army Group South. So these four fronts were deployed in three defensive belts, the weakest as a screen along the long frontier, and next to, under direct stavka, or command control, in successive ranks further back, theoretically to conduct counterattacks. Interestingly, according to David Glantz, the, the third defensive belt along the Davina and Dnipro rivers was invisible to the German intelligence. But by June 22, 1941, the Red Army wasn't exactly fully deployed according to all their plans. So not only did the attack catch the Soviets in transition, moving from one place to the next, getting themselves arranged and set up and fully ready in their planned areas, the Stavka, meaning Stalin, had deployed the largest amount of its forces in the southwestern and southern areas that was in Ukraine, anticipating the German strongest attack would be here for the country's rich resources. 
However, as we'll see, the Germans had different ideas. The Baltic Special Military District under Colonel General Fyodor Isidorovich Kuznetsov was the weakest of the front. It consisted of three armies, the 8th under Lieutenant General P.P. Sobenikov, the 11th under Lieutenant General V.I. Morozov, and the 27th Army under Major General M.E. Berzarin. Now, I mention these names because they're going to come up again. This sounds impressive, but as I said, they weren't well organized, they weren't well trained, and they were terribly under-equipped. As a result, Lieb's Army Group North tore through them and swept across the Baltics. By 10.15 a.m. on the first day, so just hours into the fight, German forces had reached the Niemen River, a major crossing. The Red Army, as it retreated, did not destroy the bridges. This allowed the Germans to just come right across. So by the end of the day, some units of the 16th Army had advanced 30 kilometers, and as I mentioned, by 11 p.m., the 8th Panzer Division halted for the night 92 kilometers or 57 miles from their starting point at 3.05 that morning. This is unheard of in warfare. On June 25th, this is three days after the launch of Barbarossa, the Stavka ordered General Kuznetsov to defend along the western Davina River, now called the Dalgava, in Latvia. In other words, in two days, Lieb's Army Group North had taken all of Lithuania, advanced nearly 300 kilometers or 200 miles in three days. But still, the 27th Army didn't get to its positions in time. And the next day, so that would be the 26th, the 56th Panzer Corps captured a bridgehead across the Delgava River, or Western Divina. In three weeks, Army Group North managed to penetrate 270 miles, conquering most of the three Baltic republics, killing and capturing 90,000 Soviet troops, destroying more than 1,000 tanks, 4,000 guns and mortars, and more than 1,000 aircraft. They prevented the Red Army from establishing any viable defenses. On July 14th, so that's three weeks into the fight, they are less than 80 miles from Leningrad itself. Army Group Center was commanded by Field Marshal Fedor von Bock and had two of the four panzer groups for the invasion, the second and third commanded by Colonel General Hurrying Heinz Guderian and Colonel General Hermann Hoth, respectively. This was the largest of the three groups and was charged with the main thrust. The two panzer groups would lead the attack, along the two sides of the Belostok salient, where the Soviet-German border bulged westward around the city now called Bielostok in Belarus. The two groups would advance along two axes, eventually link up at Minsk, encircling large numbers of Soviet forces. That was the plan, and boy did it succeed. The Germans had amassed their largest forces in Army Group Center. This would be the main attack, with the ultimate goal, if initially not considered as important, being Moscow. Now, does that seem contradictory? Yes, you're right. But the initial thinking at the OKH, including Hitler, was during that planning stage, was that capturing Moscow was less important than destroying Soviet armed forces. If the Germans could do that, could wipe out the Soviets' defensive capabilities, the theory was the communist government would collapse, just as the Tsarist regime had in 1918. Spoiler alert, 
While the Germans did destroy a staggering amount of Red Army material and killed or captured millions of soldiers in the opening months of the war, Stalin didn't fall. So this led to a major shift in strategy, one that had huge ramifications. But, sorry, I'm doing it again. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get back to that. So, as mentioned, the Army Group Center, that was the largest of the three groups, had two of the four panzer groups, and it was driving along two main prongs into Belarus, then called Belarusia or White Russia. Bel or Bal is a Slavic root term meaning white. Hence, White Russia, Belarus. The plan was to drive through Grodno, Vilnius, which is now the capital of Lithuania, but at the time was part of Belarusia, toward Minsk, Vitebsk, and then Smolensk. This actually was similar to the route taken by Napoleon's Grand Armée in 1812. Hoth's Panzer Group III would push north of the Bialystok salient through Vilnius toward Minsk. Guderian would lead the charge south of Brest, north of, of the Pripyat marshes, across the Bug River, and then sweep east and north to link up with Hoth's group at Minsk, trapping Red Army forces in a huge pocket and then destroying them, freeing them up then to advance toward Moscow. In addition to the Panzers, there were the 9th and 4th Armies under Colonel General Adolf Strauss and Field Marshal Gunther von Kluge, respectively. Supporting them in the air was the 2nd Air Fleet of more than 1,500 aircraft, more than half of all the planes committed to Barbarossa. In total, Field Marshal von Bock deployed 9 Panzer divisions, 1 Cavalry division, 6 motorized divisions, and 33 infantry divisions. That's a huge amount. On the Soviet side was the Western Special Military District, which, as I said, became the Western Front, under Army General Dmitry Grigorovich Pavlov. Unlike the Northwestern Front, the Western Front was deployed in a single echelon of three armies, the 10th, 6th, and 13th Mechanized Corps. A mechanized corps, by the way, that had almost no tanks. There is also the 4th Army, the 14th Mechanized Corps, Lieutenant General Kuznetsov's 3rd Army, and the 11th Mechanized Corps. In reserve were the 17th Mechanized Corps, stationed near Slonim between Bielostok and Minsk, the 20th Mechanized Corps, and the 4th Airborne Corps set up near Minsk. Again, it sounds like an impressive force, but as in the Northwestern Front, it wasn't fully deployed nor well organized. Worse, in the dark hours immediately before the invasion, German agents had stolen across the frontier to sabotage Red Army telephones and other communications lines. Says David Glantz, quote, Nowhere was the destruction more apparent and total than in the sector north of the Pripyat marshes, where the Wehrmacht was making its night attack. Faced with box onslaught, Pavlov's front suffered immediate paralysis of command and control. The headquarters of Korobkov's 4th Army was never able to establish reliable communications with headquarters above and below it. End quote. The Germans' careful preparations had paid off. Red Army communications were almost completely destroyed, and the initial air and artillery bombardment had destroyed most of the Red Air Force and much of the ground defenses as well. Near Brest, the 14th Mechanized Corps started under strength, with only 518 older tanks and a severe shortage of ammunition. The Luftwaffe destroyed the command posts and knocked out the communications. The opening barrage demolished most of its ammunition and fuel, inflicting 20% casualties. This rate of casualties 
basically cripples any military unit. Army Group Centers was the strongest assault of the first day. It was so devastating that General Pavlov ordered his second-in-command, Lieutenant General Ivan Bolden, to fly through attacking German fighter formations to the 10th Army's headquarters near Bialystok to help organize a counterattack. Miraculously, he made it alive, but it was a futile effort. Within a few days, the 10th Army was destroyed. At 10 p.m. on that first day, the Stavka, meaning Stalin, ordered a general counterattack in the Western Front, a vain effort. The panzers shattered the defensive lines and swept away the counterattacks. By the end of the third day, June 25th, the Soviet 6th Cavalry Corps had suffered more than 50% casualties. Half of its forces gone. One tank division was out of ammunition. Another had been reduced to three tanks. The panzers, especially those of hurrying Heinz Guderian, dashed past or over the defenders. The Red Army fell back. In the center area, the Red Army forces managed to blow some of the bridges on the Shara River in Belarusia, stranding large numbers of their own forces. Pavlov tried repeatedly to counterattack, but with the confusing and often contradictory orders coming from the center, he failed, to the point that he was ultimately re recalled to Moscow, where, in days, he was shot for his failures. In a week, by June 29th, the Germans had accomplished two major encirclements or envelopments surrounding the Russian 10th Army behind Grodno and 300,000 Soviet prisoners west of Minsk. On July 16th, so a little over two weeks after that, after another encirclement of Soviet forces, hurrying Heinz camps at Smolensk, hundreds of miles east of the border. So in those first 18 days, Army Group Center pushed some 600 kilometers or 360 miles past the frontier. They conquered all of Belarusia and killed or captured over 340,000 soldiers. The Red Army lost in total 417,000 casualties in the Western Front, 4,799 tanks, 9,427 guns and mortars, and 1,777 combat aircraft. A lot of numbers again. Sorry. Despite that, the pattern Lieb had encountered in the north replicated in Belarus. The further the Germans went, the harder the going got. In Belarus, the panzers and motorized forces were hampered by bad roads. Only a minority were paved with a hard surface. Most were just packed down earth and mud, which tank treads destroyed as they drove over them. A little aside here, this is a little scene from Army of Worn Souls and a story that my father-in-law, Maurice, told me about his experiences in the war. He explained that, yeah, the roads were basically just packed up earth. There were three raised ridges parallel over the fields. The idea was that traffic would be restricted to one of those ridges. And over time the traffic, the passing tires, and especially tank treads, would chew up the road and destroy it, making it impassable. At this point, traffic would move to the center of the three ridges, and workers would begin repairing that first ridge. 
Before they could finish that, though, the traffic would have destroyed the middle uh, parallel line of road, so traffic would move over to the third. By the time that the traffic had destroyed the third ridge, workers would hopefully have finished repairing the first line and traffic would begin to move on that. So it was an ongoing process of build a road, destroy it, repair it, destroy it, repair it. This made, though, the going slow for the invaders, as you can imagine. Also, the Germans found that the Soviets were fighting back a lot harder than they had ever anticipated. Even though they're disorganized, under-equipped, for example, in some places, the Germans found that Red Army soldiers that they captured had been issued only 15 rounds of ammunition each. So despite this, though, the, the Soviets fought hard. Historian Craig Luther quotes an official war diarist of the Second Panzer Group. This is Guderian's group. Quote, The Bolshevist, as an individual fighter, is extraordinarily tenacious and dogged. Since he has been incited against the Germans, he expects the worst if he is taken prisoner. On many occasions, he tenaciously defends himself to the last round to avoid capture at all costs. End quote. The Red Army soldier also knew how to use any advantage he might have, hiding in tall grass or grain fields, even under haystacks, to emerge behind the advancing enemy. Army Group South Commanded by Field Marshal Gerd von Ronstadt, Army Group South's mission was to, perhaps the most ambitious, to sweep through Ukraine from the west, around Lviv, seize the bridgeheads across the Dnepro River, the major river that divides Ukraine more or less in half, and capture the capital of Kiev. It was also where the Germans encountered their strongest resistance. This main group of the Germans included the 6th Army, commanded by Field Marshal Walter von Röckenau, the 17th Army, and the 1st Panzer Group, led by Colonel General Ewald von Kleist. This force was to strike eastward from Poland toward Lviv, Ternopil, and Venetia, and ultimately to the capital of Kiev. In total, von Rensen commanded 41 divisions, 25 infantry, 4 light-armored, 5 panzer, 1 mountain, and 3 motorized infantry divisions, plus 3 security divisions. This drive was supported by a second one that was to advance from Romania in the south, separated from the main attack by the about 300 kilometers of the Hungarian border. Hungary was not at this point in the war. It would join the Axis on June 26th, four days after the start of the invasion. So this southernmost force consisted of Colonel General Franz Ritter von Schobert's 11th Army and the 3rd and 4th Romanian armies, plus three German and five more Romanian Army Corps and the 4th Air Fleet of 750 aircraft. The idea was that after some days when the main Southern Front or Army Group South advanced into Ukraine, uh, this group would strike across Moldova along the Black Sea coast. On July 2nd, then, Schobert's Southern Shock Group struck eastward toward Odessa. On that first day, they reached the Prut River and then advanced almost to the Dniester. So even on the night of June 22nd and 23rd, units were still coming from as far as 400 kilometers farther east against the Germans. On that first day in the south, 
the Luftwaffe destroyed 1,811 Soviet aircraft and lost only 78 of their own. Ultimately, after gaining the eastern side of the Dnieper, the plan was to drive further east toward Kharkiv, Rostov, and the major industrial area of Donbass. Ultimately, then south to the oil fields of the Caucasus and the major industrial city of Stalingrad at the last great bend of the Volga River. Opposing them was the strongest of the Soviet fronts, commanded by Colonel General Mikhail Petrovich Kirponos, a longtime Bolshevik and a veteran of the Russian Civil War. In total, the Soviet Southwestern Front comprised 960,000 troops and five full armies and 64 divisions, with 12,600 guns and mortars, 4,800 tanks, more than all of the Wehrmachtwaffe in the whole Eastern Front, and 1,750 warplanes. In the south, once the Germans' southern shock group started moving from Romania, the Stavka set up a new southern front to face them. This comprised two armies under Colonel General A.K. Smirnov, with 22 full divisions. Despite the Red Army's limitations in terms of organization and deployment and experience, it was here that the Germans met the greatest resistance. According to Craig Luther, quote, in the South, the Soviet alarm system functioned with surprising speed and precision. End quote. Luther sums it up like this. Quote, the Germans engaged a relentless and unyielding adversary who, as an individual fighting man, was every bit as tough as the Teutonic invaders. End quote. Within days, the southern and southwestern fronts lost 241,594 men, killed, captured, or missing. 4,381 tanks, 5,806 guns and mortars, and 1,218 aircraft. The Germans, again, smashed through the defenses and advanced. By the third week of the war, they were ready to advance on Kiev. Wow, that's a lot of information in one episode, and it's a long episode. So we're going to break off right now give you time to process all of this. And then when we return next week, we're going to look at what the Red Army did in response, what their response was in the first few days of the war. We'll deal with some myths and hopefully break them for you. Until then, thank you for all your support through the Kickstarter and uh, ongoing through Patreon. Remember that you can continue to support the program and through the Patreon link and take a look at the website I've set up too. I'll have lots of maps and other resources for you to give you a visual idea of the movement of men and armies. So until next week, keep your paddles in the water and Slava Ukraina.